this week on the Backtable podcast. What I'm getting more concerned about is the fact that a lot of programs get done to try to help burnout. And what's left is you have an employee who kind of comes to work, does their job, does it okay, gets some satisfaction out of it. But then really at the end of the day, they just can't wait to go home. And it's just become just a job where medicine, if we just look at medicine, medicine should be the most joy-filled job in the world. If you think that you have the opportunity to work with amazing colleagues, a great team of people, to be able to have an individual who trusts you explicitly with their life, and then to be able to, in many cases, make an incredible difference in that person's life. I mean, there's very few situations or jobs that you can do that with. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. My name is Julie Wei. I have the privilege of being the guest host for Backtable ENT podcast on our topic today on physician well-being. And it is really special for me because I'm joined by two incredible otolaryngologists who were both my faculty um, and mentors during residency. So welcome to this episode. And whilst I'm introducing our guest, it's Dr. Carrie. Olson and Dr. Alon Sabri. So good morning, you guys. How are you? Morning, Julie. Good evening. Good morning, uh, Julie and Carrie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Alon, uh, tell our listeners, you said good evening. Where the heck are you and what time is it? Okay. <laughs> I'm in Abu Dhabi uh, in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, most people know Dubai. It's uh, right by Dubai. And it's uh, 6.20 p.m. And I'm at the Mayo Clinic Abu Dhabi here. And Carrie, where are you at today? Julie, I'm in Rochester, Minnesota. So this is my home for half of the year. And half of the year, I have a home out in Hood River, Oregon. So it's good to see my friend a lot. And it's good to see you again. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. So maybe for our listeners, we'll start by just introducing ourselves, right? Kind of um, who we are, where, you know, what we do a little bit more, and how long you've been, both of you, you know, at the Mayo Clinic, et cetera. How's that? Okay. So you guys know me. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, and I am currently not in clinical practice. As of end of February, um, suffer some medical disability um, and other factors, but um, I've been pediatric ENT now since. I finished fellowship in 2003, right? And I finished at Mayo, I can't believe it, 1996 to 2001. Um, I live in Orlando, Florida, and uh, it's just been wonderful to um, get a chance to contribute and participate with Backtable ENT. Alon, do you want to go next? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure Julie. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm uh, very pleased to be with both of you. Uh, you know how much I respect both of you. And... Uh, my background, I'm originally Lebanese. I'm a French citizen as well. I trained uh, at uh, Georgetown, uh, Cleveland, 
couple fellowships at Vanderbilt, worked at Mayo Rochester, Minnesota with both of you. Uh, then went back to American University of Beirut. Then now I'm at the Mayo Clinic Abu Dhabi. It's a 750-bed academic hospital. And uh, it's uh, set to be Mayo Clinic's uh, fourth campus. Uh, so it's nice to go back to Mayo in a way, uh, an institution I'm very fond of. I've had a very colorful and uh, varied career, and I think uh, we'll uh, fall into well into our uh, talk today. Excellent. Kerry. Good morning, Julie. Again, it's, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here too, especially to be with two good friends. Alan and I try to get together frequently in the Middle East, and we certainly enjoy our times together there. I've just completed uh, about a year and a half ago now, I recently retired after a 40-year career as a head and neck cancer surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. And I had a very fun career also in, in medical leadership at the Mayo Clinic. Since my retirement time, I am now back working at Mayo as an executive leadership coach, and I also run my own wellness company. I'm the president of a company called 12 for Health, and I'm a medical consultant for an international wellness company called 24 a Life. So one of my passions now is promoting health and wellness and well-being for people, along with medical and executive leadership coaching, which I really enjoy. But I was fortunate to have a great 40-year career. It doesn't seem like it's, it's just bare, barely ended just a few 18 months ago now, but uh, I've had a, had a great time with that and was fortunate to get to do a lot of interesting things at the Mayo Clinic. I'm just sitting here going, wow. Okay, well, you had no idea. This podcast is really just a cover for my interviewing to work for you. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think it'd be cool for our listeners to talk about how we're connected, really, outside of just the fact that we were all at Mayo Clinic in Rochester during that time, right? When I knew today was happening, you know what I have to say? My most fond memories were as a fourth-year resident, intimidated, wanting to be doing an amazing job on Carrie's head and neck service, right? And that was the year, Alon, I think you joined. And my fondest memory on those Rochester, I think it was January through March. I don't remember seeing sunlight, but we play tennis. Yeah, I mean, was that just not the most amazing time, right? And Carrie, do you remember you used to play racquetball? So every time we started hitting, it took you a few minutes and we were all in awe of how you could switch from, I'm not going to be judgmental, but that form looked really weird. And then within <laughs> 10 minutes, you were just like a professional tennis player. But thank you both. That was really the earliest unspoken part of well-being experience for me amidst a very, you know, intensive training. Yeah, you guys still play? I play a lot still. I'm, I've actually switched over now. I'm, I'm one of these, uh, these people that now is, is hitting the pickleball courts three times a week. So I've switched from tennis and racquetball to pickleball now. I have a big group of guys that I play with at least three times a week. And we have fantastic, fantastic games on those courts. So I'm really enjoying that. Awesome. After 50 years of racket sports, my shoulder kind of lost its ability to do good serving in tennis. So I had to give that up. Yeah, I, I have to admit, that's the reason I'm, I think it's been a three-year pause because of shoulder surgery and, and other things. So, you know, as I was preparing for our podcast today, I wanted to ask you both, um, how did you become passionate and now experts on the topic of physician well-being? I'm curious if you could share, was there a personal or professional trigger or event or a particular phase during your career 
when you not only became aware of, but really engage on this topic. So, Alon, do you want to start? Sure. I've gotten interested in it. You know, when in medicine, we tend to sprint, like in a tunnel, and we are programmed that way to go from one stage to another. And you keep running and you keep thinking that when I get to the next stage, oh, everything will be fantastic. And reality sometimes hits and uh, dreams uh, are shattered. Uh, I'm going to use a hard term because we go into medicine thinking all is wonderful. We're going to save the world. And then you realize there are so many realities, corporate medicine, finances, competition, and so many things. So I burned out and then I realized that I burned out earlier in my med school year. I think this starts very early. Mm -hmm. Even though I thought I had, I did have a quite a well-rounded childhood and uh, later young adulthood, I was engaged in sports, all kinds of, as you know, skiing, tennis, travel, you know, but also part of it, I grew up in a war in Lebanon, so that may have left a few. But again, it's just running and the competition and from one stage to another. And as you, I don't want to say mature, maybe, I don't know, but as you get a bit older, as you get in your 40s and 50s, you start getting a more of a bird's eye view on things. And you start thinking, putting your life together and really looking uh, at things globally. And that's when I started getting interested, reading about it, did some research on it and lectured about physician burnout and a little bit wellness kind of all over the place. And uh, initially it wasn't that well received. People were saying, well, that doesn't exist and stuff. And then you realize, people start realizing and, and it's a real problem as we all know. Burnout uh, happens between 40 and 70%, depending on the specialty, depending on what study. And it is a real problem. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of it. Yeah, thanks for sharing. And, and Carrie, I've always known you, right? Dr. Olson, the incredible, you know, surgeon, um, mentor, educator. And then after my residency fellowship, you know, I was peripherally continued to be aware of your incredible leadership and service for Mayo Clinic as an organization. Can you tell our audience, how did you become passionate about well-being? I mean, you always seem to have everything together, right? Balanced, you know. Sure, Julie. It's a, you know, it's a, I could talk about this subject for a long time because it's something very near and dear to my heart. And and if I look back on this, I would say there's really several things that were going on in my career that got me very interested in health and wellness. First of all, I had a significant number of major leadership roles at the Mayo Clinic where you'd start to really worry about the well-being of your 30,000 employees or 40,000 employees at that time. And it wasn't just their financial viability as an organization, but you start worrying about their well-being as people and as, as good, productive employees and as happy employees. And we used to say, to try to live a good life so that they could enjoy their retirement years. And so the concern about employees was a big thing. But I would say that working as a head and neck surgeon for so many years, I started really hearing much more from my patients about the following. What can I do to prevent a cancer from coming back? What can I do so I don't get another cancer? And I'd hear that all the time from patients and I'd start to listen to them and we'd have great conversations about what were the things that were that they really noticed that made a difference in their lives and what and why did some of my cancer patients actually seem to be living happier, more purposeful lives than my non-cancer patients. So that was another interesting thing. And then finally, I had the opportunity to work with some great people in our development area, working with some donors who were very interested 
in trying to pursue health and wellness for Mayo Clinic's employees. And that led to a series of programs where we actually built a very wonderful healthy living center for Mayo's employees that was seeing almost 4,000 patients a day. And, and because of that, the uh, CEO of the organization asked if I would be the medical director of that. And I have served in that role for 10 years. And then I got to work with all of Mayo Clinic's experts in every aspect of well-being and health that you could imagine and really tapped into their expertise to try to find out what was really making a difference. And that ultimately led me to try to pursue a program for Mayo's employees and then ultimately a program for people all over the world and try to really make a difference in their health, which led me to develop a program that I mentioned that I'm the president of now, a company called 12 for Health. But if I could tell you one brief story yes, that please. I think made a huge difference to me that I'll never, I'll never forget. As Julie knows that and Alan knows that, I was walking back very quickly from Methodist Hospital one time to get to the clinic to see my patients. And one of the, one of the uh, husbands of one of my patients noticed me in the halls and he started walking with me. And his wife had come over a few days before from France and I had seen her for a cancer in the tongue and we had just operated on her. And she was actually doing well, but I had missed him at rounds that morning. And as we're walking along, he's talking to me about asking me about his wife. And I was telling him that he's doing fine. And his wife was in her early 60s and he looked like he was in his early 60s too. And we're walking quite quickly. And I finally said to him, I said, you know, I'm a little surprised that your wife came all the way from France for this tongue cancer. And I said, there's lots of great surgeons in France that I know. And he said, well, we didn't come from my wife. We came from myself. And I said, well, do you have a major health problem? And he said, no, I've canceled my appointments to be with my wife. My wife just wanted me to be seen to get a physical exam. And I said, why is that? Do you have an issue? And she said, no, she's just concerned about my age and the fact that I don't see doctors. And I said, I looked at him, I said, well, I don't understand. And he said, well, I'm 93 years old. And I stopped and I looked at him, thought, 93. I mean, we've all seen people who are elderly, who look good or look fit. This person truly looked like he was 63. I mean, I thought this was like the, mo the greatest anomaly I've ever seen in medicine. I looked at this person. I said, come on now, really, how old are you? He said, no, I'm 93 and I'm, I don't see physicians and my wife is worried. And that led he and I to have some very interesting conversations about what he had done in his life and other people had done in their life. And it led me to really develop a big interest in what could you do to promote healthy living and well-being for people uh, besides the three kind of classic things of exercise, stress, and diet. And so when I developed a program, it had nothing to do with exercise, stress, and diet. It had to do with things that really made a difference in people's lives. So that was, that's a long-winded explanation, but it led me to be able to really be active in health and wellness during my cancer career at the Mayo Clinic and now afterwards in retirement. So it's been a a great ride, but I can tell you ultimately who is the person that benefits the most from all this is we benefit personally from it. If you can take good care of yourself and your family in any program like this, you're helping yourself, you're helping your friends, you're helping others. It's, it's a great, uh, great purposeful journey. Wow. That, that's an incredible story, right? I, I'm not surprised at all to be inspired by our conversation today. And we still have a lot more to dive in. I will tell you for the last decade, the talks I've been giving, the data I've been quoting, the reason it's inspirational is I've got two, you know, incredible head and neck surgeons, right? Head and neck is actually, right, one of the subspecialties that have the highest risk of burnout. And I have personally had an opportunity to support 
uh, some colleagues and, and fellow otolaryngologists who, especially free flap surgeons, et cetera. So, and the other thing that you said, Carrie, that really resonated with me, so much of it. <laughs> I could listen to you all day. You're a podcast all by yourself. What resonated with me is, I have to tell you, for the rest of everybody who doesn't work at the Mayo Clinic, okay? I'm not putting Mayo on a pedestal. Um, of course it is to me. Here's the thing. To hear you talk about the primary purpose was focusing on the well-being of the employees. I'm going to tell you that that's just refreshing and something that everyone deserves, especially physicians. But um, yeah, what do you think, Alon, of, of those comments? What resonated with you? Well, I'm so proud to have worked for so long with Carrie, and we have exchanged so many ideas regarding this. I think um, the, the most important, I think, aspect is recognition and to have the courage to say there's a problem. So recognizing. Number two, uh, uh, you're right. Um, uh, the, the, the Mayo Clinic is not that different from other places. It has the same challenges. Maybe it, it runs uh smooth in certain ways, but it's the same challenges across. Uh, I did some research on burnout in different parts of the world. There are various challenges in different places, but I think uh, the general principle is about the same. So it's extremely important, number one, to recognize, not to be ashamed, to realize we're not alone, and to realize that this is not a death sentence uh, that you can recover, even uh, become a wiser and better human being for it. Uh, I don't like the cliche that which does not kill you makes you stronger, but but you can be better. Uh, you, you know, not without scars. And uh, and there are individual strategies and institutional strategies. And I'll be happy to talk about it when the time comes. But I think it's very important to have a good support system. And uh, to uh, and and you know to go back to your question, what interested me in this? Not the fact that um, you know so many of us have had burnout in various degrees and various times in our careers, but it's listening to the to my colleagues say the same thing over and over again. Uh, some some of the the issues are uh, particular to medicine, but I, I have colleagues in engineering, in business, in banking, in uh, law who have similar issues. We're very lucky in medicine uh, in a way that um, I think many of us feel that our jobs are very meaningful. Most of us love what we do, though sometimes we do hate it at times because of the things we're gonna discuss, like how medicine has become so corporate, et cetera. But, uh, but uh, mainly is recognition, seeking support, finding solutions at the individual and at the institutional levels. Yeah. So, you know, the transition I like to move into because I'm really um, eager to hear from both of your perspectives because your perspectives are not just as a head and neck surgeon, right? I mean, Alon, you have the global, much more global, so does Carrie, and, um, and just the length of time that you've been directly involved with this. So I'm just going to go right to it. Let's talk about the pandemic impact, right? There's mainstream awareness now. You know, I remember 2012 when I gave my first burnout course at the academy. There were five people that showed up. And over the years, you know, the pre-pandemic, we got to standing room only. And I'll just plug, I know you guys are giving a course as well. But, you know, so, so the public heard throughout the pandemic, right? Doctors are heroes. You know, I feel like, yeah, okay. We, and then now the physicians are like, I don't want to hear another talk about burnout, okay, to the 
to that extreme. However, everyone's still looking for solutions. So I'm curious from your perspective, you if you had to summarize how from everything you're involved in and what you see, how the pandemic is impacting the providers, the public, physicians, and has truly exacerbated erosion of well-being at a level that I think is immeasurable as you deal with short staffing. And I, it's not exactly the great resignation. You know, I, I've quit. I've had partners that quit. I just met my daughter's golf team mom, who the father's a neurosurgeon, the mom's a physician. She just quit. And I'm on a Facebook page with 23,000 physicians who have left. I'm just kind of go, go, going to go there and get your perspective, if you can comment on that. Carrie, do you want to go first? Sure, Julie. You know, I think the, the pandemic's effects have been uh, widespread, very, very serious in multiple arenas, all the way from when I look at what's happened to my grandkids in school to colleagues at work. If you look at it from the physician's perspective, I think there's several things that initially really were high impact areas. One was the impact of COVID in and of itself on staff who were getting sick from it and watching your colleagues really in a risky situation. The increased time that it took you to do things because of the personal protective devices and, and garments and everything that one had to do, our, our practice changed dramatically. Also, the big thing has been the isolation. The fact that so many people that were part of your team suddenly were working at home, were not coming in, were isolated from work. And isolation is, is a huge thing and is, well, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about one of the biggest concerns I have uh, in terms of just people's well-being in general is this issue of isolation, loneliness, not really liking what they're doing, like you just alluded to, why are they quitting? But then if you look at it from a medical perspective, because there have been a large number of people who left medical practice, either they were burned out or they chose to retire or they uh, their jobs did not continue because they wouldn't get a vaccination or for whatever reason, there's been a huge shortage of employees. What does that do? It makes the processes of seeing patients less efficient. It means that those that are mm -hmm. still working have to work harder and more hours. It's just a recipe for continued burnout. And until people really recognize this, I don't sense that it's going to get a whole lot better. It's, it's a real struggle right now. And people that I talk to all over the country. I appreciate your honesty. Yeah. Alon, do you want to comment? I don't have much to add other than uh, I think the pandemic exacerbated everything we discussed and we will discuss, number one. Number two, the, the, the danger on the individual, on yourself. So you're working, it's like working in an ER in a place that has a very high murder rate and, you know, dangerous place. And number three is, uh, I think the pandemic made people stand back and reflect on their lives mm -hmm. and maybe push them to change something in it. Uh, so that's my two cents in that uh, regard. Yeah. So I'm going to say this, you know, yes, granted, there was, I agree with everything you've said. I'm going to ask you to comment on this part. Look, I'm not fresh out of fellowship or in my first three years, right? So having been pursuing professional growth, personal growth, get to leadership positions and all that, right? And then to go through disability amidst the pandemic, that, that wasn't fun either. Um, so there's a lot of reflection and learning. But I want to ask you guys about 
I'm just going to go where I think so many of our listeners and physicians experience, but there's no good structure way to articulate it. I went back to school last year. I'm doing my master's in medical management. Um, and the reason is I wanted a broader perspective. I reflected on how the last few years I've become quite disillusioned, disheartened, where my values didn't always line up with, you know, what was going on, right? Even as a leader and as a frontline physician. So what I want to ask you is this, when we ourselves are clear on the impact and the toll on us, the risks, especially for otolaryngologists, what do you do when you're in systems where we, we know, right, we know the challenges of the United States healthcare delivery system compounded by, right, the, finan the, the push for financial performance the measuring a doctor's worth by RVUs. I mean, I'm just going to call it all out because I have the world's expert on this podcast. I feel like during the pandemic, man, we just upped it. We just cranked it up and boiled the frog a few degrees faster. Carrie, I want you to run the healthcare in this country. <laughs> How yeah. are we going to save? You just said this is not going to get better. I mean, we are in a horrible crisis of this getting worse. So how how do we get the listeners who I really want to listen to this are the non-clinicians, I hate to call this out, who are in charge and making decisions, right, that are running big health systems that impact physicians' daily realities. Sorry, that's just a simple question. We'll get to a harder yeah. one later. Let's re-engineer let's re the healthcare system and make it efficient. <laughs> well, you know, Julie, it is, it is a, it's a complex question. There's not a simple answer. But I think if we look at this, then, and I just recently wrote something that I referred to as there's a big elephant in the room in, in terms of medical economics right now. And that said, if you look at any healthcare organization anywhere in the country, all healthcare organizations have to focus on three things as part of their management and as part of the strategic planning. They have to focus on the financial viability of their organization. That's critically important. If you're not financially viable, everything's going to fall apart. The second, they have to focus on their customer. They have to focus on the patient, meeting the needs of the patient, doing what they can for the patient, having good patient satisfaction, good outcomes. And the third thing, they have to focus on the welfare of their staff. They have to view their staff as a very important asset. And I think that one of the problems that we're getting into medicine right now is people talk about medicine becoming more corporate or medicine becoming more RVU driven is that all three of these are important but I think most medical institutions, and I'm saying this without a lot of data or knowledge, just from talking to people, I believe that most medical institutions would say, yes, all three of those are important, but we're going to prioritize those as finance is number one, and maybe patients is number two, and staff is number three. And I think that you're never going to effectively address burnout or effectively address the issues of happiness, purpose, joy in the practice of medicine until organizations prioritize it, patient number one, staff number two, and finances number three. Not that they're all not important, but I think you have to do it in that direction. That has the biggest chance of making a difference. Because right now, I'm very concerned about what's happening when I talk to colleagues all around the country and I hear what's what are they saying. They're saying that there's all kinds of financial challenges that are coming into physicians' lives and organizations and so what do they do is the doctors have to see more and are getting more burned out and are getting ready and leaving. They say, well, we'll up your salary a little bit to keep you. So they up their salary. And the minute they up a physician's salary, what happens in a short time? Physicians start to say, well, gee, maybe I can cut back the time I'm working. Maybe I can go part-time. 
or I could cut back my hours. Or maybe they're going to say, I'm going to cut back the activities that I'm doing. I'm not going to be so involved in education or administration or function on this committee unless you, quote, give me time for it and pay me for it. And pretty soon you have a situation that becomes untenable because if the only way you can incentivize behavior in the positions is to pay them more, and as you pay them more, they're going to look for ways to reduce their hours and time, pretty soon you don't have enough people working for you. And it becomes a, a race to the bottom. So in essence, is there a solution? No, but I first, as Alon said earlier, you have to step up and recognize what the problem is and then start to work on it on a broad-based nature. I think that's really realistically the only thing that can be done. But it's incredibly complex, and I realize that. You know, I appreciate your candor, especially somebody with your, your background, experience, and leadership roles. So, yeah, that's terrific. Alon, any comments on that? Sure. I think the, uh, the issue was summarized well by Kerry regarding the, the finances being number one. And unfortunately, we see that I think this is a bit short-sighted. Uh, leadership is extremely important here. So a good leadership needs to recognize that take care of the, you know, your employee and everything else will take care of itself. So, so many studies have supported that. There's studies at the Mayo Clinic done by Schoenfeld and others. Uh, for example, one aspect they looked at, if you let a physician do, I think one hour or two, a week of something they find meaningful, it increases the engagement by that many points. Again, I'm not going to go through numbers here, but uh, another one is having established some uh, institutional steps. Mayo has established nine institutional steps to address burnout, has greatly decreased the amount of burnout, increased the amount of engagement, which is the antithesis of burnout. There's also the notion of speak up, but shut up. So I'm going to be very candid here. Institutions tell you speak up and there's a way to do it. Of course, you can speak up and uh, you speak up and that's not very well received. That's where leadership comes in at the same time uh, as well. So a good leader or a good group of leaders listens carefully, puts a focus group together, sets up a system where employees, and we're not just talking about physicians here, nurses have incredible mm -hmm, amount of mm -hmm. stress and burnout. And as you know, the machine does not work without all its components. So essentially, you're well aware of the studies that have shown that a burned out physician is much less efficient. There's increased turnover. Losing a physician will cost three times more for the institution to replace that physician, probably the same for other uh, healthcare personnel. And there's a great increase in medical errors mm -hmm. through done through objective studies in burned out and stressed physicians and a, and a great decrease in efficiency in burnout. So it does not cost the institution to study and address burnout. On the contrary, it helps the institution in every way possible. And that's what people need to realize. And I think it's very important for the individual to start by raising the alarm bell, getting together, working on individual strategies, which I'd be happy to expand more on, and at the same time for the institution through good leadership to work on institutional strategies to address it. Yeah, thank you. We'll definitely get to the institutional strategies. But first, this is a trick question for both of you. You'll answer first, and I'll give you my comment. Can one be engaged and burned out? I think yes. And uh, actually, uh, I think we've been fluctuating, at least me, for the past 25 years in my career between one and the other. Uh, 
So I went into medicine out of passion, as did I think most people. I love what I do, and sometimes I'm, you know, burned out. It can vary from day to day. It can be a chronic thing because of everything we talked about, because you feel like a cog in a wheel and you feel like you're uh, not valued because you are as valuable as the money you make. And uh, yes, you can be both. And I think a lot of people are both. What do you think, Carrie? Thank you. Well, you know, Julie, I think some of this is, gets into just semantics, to be honest with you. I think there's been studies that have talked about burnout and engagement existing at the same time in different people and different areas of their work and different areas of their life. But if we really think of an employer and you think of what do you want your employees to be and you want them to be enthusiastic and you want them to be engaged in work and have a strong sense of purpose and be innovative and be responsible and to be diligent and, and to be great with their customers and great with their colleagues, it's kind of the antithesis of burnout. So, I mean, I really think that, yes, there can be fluctuations, but I would still view in most cases that these are extremes, that if you're burned out as a person, yes, it's a very serious problem and it affects things. And then could you still be engaged? You know, I think that it's less likely. What I'm getting more concerned about is the fact that a lot of programs get done to try to help burnout. And what's left is you have an employee who kind of comes to work does their job, does it okay, gets some satisfaction out of it, but then really at the end of the day, they just can't wait to go home. And it's just become just a job. Where medicine, if we just look at medicine, medicine should be the most joy-filled job in the world. If you think that you have the opportunity to work with amazing colleagues, a great team of people, to be able to have an individual who trusts you explicitly with their life, and then to be able to in many cases, make an incredible difference in that person's life. I mean, there's very few situations or jobs that you can do that with. I used to tell my children all the time, if you could find a job that you can have lifelong learning and to some extent do something to help other people, you're going to have a very satisfactory career. And I, and I firmly believe that. And I think that's what medicine offers. It's just that right now we're dealing with so many other things that I know you're going to get into that that are leading to burnout and and as Alan pointed out, there's issues that that are the negative side of it for how you deal with with patients. There's negative sides of it to the organization, but there's big negative sides to it to the physician who's burned out in terms of their own health as well. Yeah. So I want to go back to something that uh, Alan said that um, I think is really important because I've heard it repeatedly from colleagues around the country, feeling valued. Okay, and that, I want to talk about what it takes for physicians to feel value for a second, right? Because th the truth is pre-pandemic, if you look at data, you know, these annual or twice a year surveys, you guys know what I'm talking about. Then you get the data and the single question, at least in my observation, that tends to have the lowest value was the lowest score was feeling valued, right? So I can imagine the larger the group, you know, I've never been in private practice. When you're in large health systems, that's a lot of people. So physicians still, I think more than ever, it, based on everything we've talked about, are not feeling valued. And that's to your point, Carrie, you can adjust salary. You know, when you're not feeling valued, I don't think it's possible to have optimal engagement. 
right? Engagement is also a choice too. I'm big on accountability from the individual. I wanted to be the most engaged employee in my organization because there's not anything I won't give if I believe, right? But please tell me a little bit about from your, what do you think makes, based on your experience, yourself as a physician and everyone you've served and led, what makes us feel valued? Because maybe the gap is that those who employ us in this complicated system and big engine, if we could get that part a little bit better, maybe it would make impact or tell me if I'm wrong. I'll start, Julie, on this because I think this is a, it's a very important thing. It's a very important uh, topic. And as Alan pointed out earlier so well, this gets right to the heart of selecting and training and resourcing leaders effectively, because this goes back to leadership. And this, I could tell you a story that, that brought home to me many, many years ago. It was a time that I was president of the staff at Mayo, and I was going to interview a person that had been an instructor when I was a medical student. And this person was one of my, we all have these physicians who we all remember, as you'd say, is one of your heroes, a person who was such a great instructor, such a dynamic individual, such a caring person. I mean, this person was one of the best individuals I've ever met in my career. And I had heard that he was cutting down his practice and, and voluntarily going to reduce his time by 20%. And I heard it was so that he could go ahead and do education for his residents and medical students, and he didn't have time to do it on his own. You have to appreciate, this is many years ago, this is probably 30 years ago, but I decided I was gonna go down and I went down to his office and I met with him in his office and we talked about this. And he, we just, I told him how, how he was so an instrumental in helping me as a student. He had helped me with patients since the years. I was really surprised he had to do this. And at the end, he said something to me that really struck home. He said, do you realize that in my entire career, you are the first person in a leadership role that has ever come down to my office, sat with me, and said, thank you for what I'm doing? I, I was like floored. I was like shocked. I said, nobody's ever done it. He said, nobody's ever done it. Now, this individual, I mean, just to hear this from a colleague who I respected made me realize there's an issue with leadership. And there's some leaders who would do this you, you'd never even think of this because they would do it well. So if somebody doesn't feel valued, I think it's because of, of their leader. I think a good leader gets to know his team, gets to know the people, gets to know the issues, gets to know the problems, and appropriately rewards, says something, uh, recognizes good work at the right time. So it's not just gratuitous, it's real. And it, it, goes, back, it goes back to a lot that leadership plays an incredible role here. And you can value colleagues but through, by each other. I think gratitude is a big thing that you can do with colleagues, just saying thank you. How you do this is, is incredibly important. So we all get value from our patients. We get thanks from our patients, just like we can get negative from patients. We can get thanks from patients. But to get it from your colleagues, to get it from people you respect. And I always said to people, the, the, the opinion that matters most is those people that you value the most. And so you have to remember that a lot of times the people that are looking up to you or that are working with you, you've got to spend the time to talk to them about these things because that value comes from your colleagues as well as from leaders. Excellent comments. Alon? 
So the first thing, uh, I echo everything Kerry said. Uh, the first thing that um, I've noticed, one of the aspects that got me interested in this is hearing people all the time saying, people don't understand what I do. People don't appreciate what I do. I've given 20 years to this institution and I make one little mistake or perceived mistake or one, as you said, uh, one month my productivity goes down 5% and people point it out in front of everybody. And until down, now I get this. I got a phone call recently or an email. Oh, the productivity of your department went down uh, for the month of August. Well, yeah, we had three people on vacation. Well, why were they on vacation? It's like, come on, it's not the end of the world. We're one of the most productive departments, one of the most uh, prolific departments. Uh, as an individual, as a department, you feel demoralized and devalued by this hyper statistic and this American corporate medicine, which I honestly, in a way, ran away from, but it followed me across the world. And uh, many people are following it, though some systems don't follow it as much like the French system uh, or others. Uh, and there's this, this obsession with statistics and week-to-week -week statistics. We have to be fiscally responsible over a certain period of time. But I've noticed and going, I've had the pleasure and of working at different institutions across the world, but a common mistake uh, institutions make is that they go through these statistics, you know, almost on a weekly basis and uh, make, honestly, people feel horrible. Uh, great employees, great people feel very bad about themselves. Uh, so uh, feeling valued, recognizing the services of persons, treating them with respect for what they're worth, and leadership and selection are very important. Selection of a great people, and also you selecting the right institution for you, and never, never, I would say, and I don't want to sound like I'm giving advice, I'm too young to do that maybe, but never hesitate to walk away from a situation where you feel respect and no longer being served, where you're not being valued even even if you point a few things out and try it as an individual or as a team to try to redirect the priorities of a certain group or institution, if you see that doesn't work, you know, there are so many opportunities out there and uh, there's never, 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 uh, you never miss a chance to reinvent yourself. And uh, I think it takes a bit of courage. It's very difficult to do when you're down and burned out and we can talk about you know, how to maybe try to do that. It's always easier said than done. Yeah, I, I def, wow, listening to you both, thank you. You validate my experience and existence. I think you are right. You know, this, in these last few years, I'm challenging myself. And when I give talks on this topic, it's really a shame that physicians who are highly educated, passionate about their career, their calling, the, you know, this is a very select group of people, right? And to really just shove metric upon metric upon metric, and, and we want to do right, and we're competitive amongst ourselves, and we will push ourselves like no other. I, do we really need other people to push us? I don't think so, right? At the expense of our personal relationship, marriage, self-care, you name it. I really feel, unfortunately, we've then internalized our, the way we look at ourselves and measure ourselves. And that's why when someone points out to you that your metrics are not uh, are suboptimal, 
It is an emotional, visceral, very intense, even negative response. And that I feel has been um, unfortunately a factor in eroding physician well being, right? Because physicians, you know, a lot of em emotional energy and frustration and anger is lost when you are not in control, right? When you're day to day seeing patients, clinic flow, but yet you have no influence, no matter how much you escalate, provide solutions, make suggestions, right? When, when you become this conditioned, <laughs> I hate to say it, and you start to wonder if you're crazy, right? And thank you for saying speak up or shut and shut up. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, it's just, um, I'm hoping by sharing my life journey and professional journey, we are helping people to challenge their inner narrative, look in the mirror to really understand where their value and their worth comes from. And Carrie's right. And the greatest joy we get is with, with our colleagues, right? Because we, we can really respect and, and appreciate each other. Maybe uh, Carrie will share this with me. One of the reasons I'm still in medicine, academic medicine, is you, Julie. <laughs> I don't know if you understand. <laughs> no, Is mentorship is for us to be so proud of the colleagues we have mentored and work with and seeing them surpass us, honestly, become better than us. So that gives such meaning to our lives. So that's one good aspect of medicine is making a difference with the patients. And one of the things I tell some of my colleagues, I say, reread all these beautiful notes you got from grateful patients. Just put them somewhere in, in, in an envelope. You know, I'm still doing, I still do paper or in a file and reread them to re, or from your mentors, uh, mentees, I'm sorry, uh, or from your mentors, your recommendation letters or, or how much you've made difference in people's lives. So that's, I think, very important. Uh, the second point I, I wanted to make uh, regarding what you were mentioning, you know, we do have so many things to be grateful for. At the same time, uh, there are the way we are programmed. Uh, I think part of the problem is us, we physicians, because burnout is a syndrome, and syndrome is a disease in a way. And I hate to call it that. And we physicians, in general, are horrible patients. Right? We're not very good patients. So we are programmed from uh, high school to pre-med to med school to residency fellowship, to be the best, to be OCD, to be especially surgeons. We have big egos and uh, we have very fragile egos. And, uh, and I think I'm still working on myself to sometimes you have to let things slide and not take things personally and realize that this hyper obsession with numbers and stuff doesn't mean I'm not a good doctor. That means somebody has a problem with numbers and I shouldn't take it personally or me and my team take it personally. And as a good leader, I should tell my team, listen, we can do maybe better, or these are some circumstances, but let's stick together and keep doing our best. So, so part of it is the way we're programmed. Part of it is perception as well. And part of it is perspective uh, and looking at things more through an eagle's bird view and saying, it's not the end of the world. I can overcome this or get another job or find a situation or just have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with whoever, uh, a peer, a leader, a, an institutional director, and say, this is 
you know, honesty. I think there's nothing like honesty sitting down and putting the laying down the problems on the table. And if the differences cannot be solved, there's always a solution. Either walking away or having enough people who feel the same and readjusting priorities, situation, expectations, and goals. Yeah, thank you for sharing that perspective. Okay, I'm going to shift a little bit before we will get to the system strategies for sure. But of course, no podcast or <laughs> on any topic of well-being, you know, we have to spend just a little bit of time about self-care, right? So I've been privileged to be invited to give many visiting professorships or surgery grand rounds, but I, I even open with, this is not a talk about yoga and meditation. I have nothing against yoga and meditation, but if we thought that physicians could just do enough yoga and meditate to, to get ourselves out of the pandemic of physician burnout, then, then we have a problem. That is so important. It is a key component because it's the one that you can delegate, right? So I wanted to ask you guys just you know, a little bit on the personal side, what has worked for you for all these decades? You know, We talked a little bit about sports that we like, but what have you done that work and any stories where it wasn't successful when it comes to your own health. You know, this is particularly, wow, very special to me. I never thought I would have the medical disability I've endured and losing, you know, the identity of being a surgeon. So yeah, Carrie, do you want to go first and share a little bit about what self-care looks like and how it's evolved over the years and different phases of your career? Sure. You know, Julie, I think self-care is is uh, something that is always challenging for physicians, especially, as you mentioned, at different times in your career. I look back when my four kids were young uh, and you were, you were starting out your career with children at home. It's, it was a much more challenging situation and, uh, than it was later in my career. But I could tell you that for probably the last 20 years of my 40-year career, I was able to establish something that works for me and it doesn't work for everybody, but it, you, had a, you have to find something that works for you that you, can, that you can enjoy, that you can stick with, that's fun, that's not onerous, and that you enjoy. And, and, I, and I'm fortunate to have a great wife who was amazing in terms of helping me with the family and all the things at home, but she's also a, a holistic healer, a Reiki master and a massage therapist. And she, I've always said that she maybe has helped more people with her Reiki practice than I ever did with my surgical practice. So, you know, it, she, she was very instrumental in having me do two things. One is she always, always tell me the first thing you, when you get out of bed in the morning, I flop down on the floor by my bed and I do 15 minutes of stretching. It really helped me to avoid issues with back because back issues were a big problem for me throughout the years. And with, by doing that, I don't have back issues. And then before I, and then I would always go in, I would usually go into the gym or right now I go to racquetball or I go to pickleball or whatever I'm going to do, or I'm going to go for a run or bike. I'm a big believer in doing a variety of things. I do. I found out the only time I can do that, the only time that ever worked for me, and I don't care what works for other people, was to do it early in the morning. But before I would do that early in the morning, I would go up into a room in our home that I have set aside for 15 minutes of quiet, personal reflective time. It's time for prayer. It's time for spirituality. It's time for reading for wisdom. You can talk about it being for meditation. You can talk about it just for being calmness. You can talk about it being to just set what you're going to do for that day. And because I do that every day, that was a gift for my wife. She said I should do that. And I've been doing that for years now. And I did it this morning. And it's a, it's a great way to start the day. 
And then I would go and I would do something from an exercise standpoint that I liked. I found that the easiest thing for me was to do it with other people. I, I loved it, doing it with other people. And if I could do it outdoors, that was the best thing of all. In Minnesota, unfortunately, a lot of it was indoors. But still, doing it with other folks was the best thing of all. So that was the start of my day. And then, you know, besides that, a lot of things that we could talk about. But that, that, I think that beginning, that kickoff of the day for self-care was really important for me. And those three things were, were really instrumental. I love that, Carrie. And please give my best to Carol. Yes, she's always been just, you know, the, the joy that emanates from her. And I know her commitment to holistic health. Holistic health has been a big transformative part of my career when caring for children. So I really, I really like that. And before we go to Alon, I'll just, I'll just say this, you know, for somebody who was out there trying to use publicly, take risk, vulnerability from my childhood trauma, my immigrant journey, anything about me that could let other people know they're not struggling alone. You know, when I had the right decompression shoulder surgery, then adhesive capsulitis, then chronic pain, then when the cervical radiculopathy onset last October, I mean, all of it was tough. But you know, the one greatest gift was what I had learned cognitively, but couldn't put it in practice until I was on medical leave and resigned from my job, which was the routine, right? So if you're somebody that well, there's a thousand reasons why I can't exercise. I don't have time. I'm a mom. I don't, you know, meetings, you know, meetings now start at 6.30, at 7 o'clock. Basically, what I found out was you have to be uncomfortable for a period of time. And now my husband and I walk the dog in the morning. Then I'm at the gym. Like you said, what worked for me, it took a while to figure it out. And it got to the point where instead of dreading it, I love it. I love going into that gym and whether it's treadmill weights and then having other people around me. You know, some people like to do their Peloton at home alone, but whatever it is, I definitely have learned firsthand what that feels like. And when you've truly incorporated it, I think it's sustaining and that's what, what needs to happen. And I will say this, you totally do what works for you. I try to fake it. I hate spinning class. I was using bad words in my head the entire time. So after three sessions, it was clear that spinning was not going to be my thing. Yeah, Alon, what about you and self-care, you know, over the decades and where are you at now currently? Thank you. I think it's extremely, it was extremely important for me to, uh, to use those individual strategies. Some of it was learned growing up in the war. I mean, we, we despite the war, uh, we we had you know a relatively decent childhood. We did everything, and we learned to you know overcome the stresses in certain ways or another by camaraderie. So for me, uh, there's something I, I coined a little bit: cafe therapy, and that's where a little bit the Eastern societies. Uh, I come from an Eastern society are a little bit, do things a little bit different than the Western society, which tend to be more lonely and more reserved and more distant. I don't want to generalize. But for me, cafe therapy is extremely important. Go have a coffee with a trusted friend, with a colleague, and exteriorize and share your problems. Uh, I think it can be better than any psychologic or psychiatric medication or session. And if you do that on a regular basis, so develop and maintain these friendships, childhood friends, family ties, 
family can be a stress, but you can have good family as well. So, so that's one is the social aspect of uh, of your life. Uh, don't isolate yourself, and that's extremely for me one of the most important things regarding meditation. All that I agree with you. Meditation doesn't work for everyone. I come from a culture. I'm not religious. I, I almost never go to church. But I come from a culture where I look at my colleagues who are Muslim, who are Jewish, who are Buddhists, who are Christians, who are the Druze from all these religions, and they pray. And I think it's a form of meditation that's common to all of humanity. So if that's good for you, all the better. It doesn't do much for me. I, uh, the other issue is the outdoors, nature, exercising. There's a huge amount of literature about exercise and the decrease in depression and stress and just walking outdoors, being around trees, being in the sun, you can do this very easily. The other issue to address is be honest with yourself and define what makes you tick professionally. So again, that goes back to your courage and your defining what you want, where you are in life and your leadership. So let's say Carrie is my boss or you're my boss. I go to you, I say, Julie, Carrie, you know what? I'm not feeling much, uh, uh, and maybe I did this at some point when I was with Carrie, I, you know, doing, I don't want to do, you know, two, three free flaps a week anymore. It's burning me out. I want to go more into education. Uh, you know, we are very lucky to be in a field, as Carrie said, where we can do research, we can educate, we can do global medicine, where we used to go to South America and do some humanitarian work. You know, you can, without decreasing the amount of work you do, you can find more meaning in your work. So, and that nobody can define that but the individual themselves. So, social support, friendships, meaningful relationships, what, you know, define what makes you take mentorship, as I mentioned, and uh, practicing gratitude. Kerry has a beautiful video he shared by Louis Schwartzberg, and we'll show it in our course about, you know, the, the practicing gratitude. It's very hard to do all of this when you're down and depressed. And sometimes, you know, getting better seems like a big mountain, but I think starting a small step by small step will get us there. And, and um, so these are my two cents regarding the individual strategies. Oh, you both together have such incredible wisdom. Carrie, I want to say that I highly resonate and encourage colleagues as well with that self-reflection time. You know, these last few years for me is really understanding how critical self-awareness is and whether that's, you know, at home, at work, all the time, Near, uh, modulating my emotions, listening to what my inner voice is telling me. And a big part of what I'm learning is how physicians and surgeons can we dissociate our mind from our body, right? Because we go to work when we're hurt. We go to work when we're sick. There is nothing in the world that's going to make me cancel my patients or cases unless I'm in a hospital and dying somewhere. I mean, these are literally things that you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our listeners are living it. And I think it wasn't until I understood that I've neglected my body for my entire life in the sense that I don't listen. It's telling me I've had all kinds of physical manifestations of illness that when you go to the ER or you go to specialists and they can't diagnose it, 
<laughs> in the Asian culture, right? Your digestive system, your stomach. I mean, that is the center of the universe. And and I think all I'm saying is as I'm 52 now, I'm trying to listen to my heart and my body. And there's so much noise in the world. And physicians live as if they have what I call scarcity of time and scarcity of life. Because there's not enough time to see all the patients, to deal with all your charts, to do 4,000 things that are added to your plate every day. And you get overwhelmed and anxious and you manage anxiety by doing more. And when in fact it's that self-reflection and that calm time away from the noise and all that's expected of you, that is really pretty extraordinary. So thank you for sharing that. You know, Juliet, there's a, a philosopher and a mathematician uh, and a physicist named Pascal. And I like to quote him a lot because Pascal always said that all of mankind's problems stand from his inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And in actuality, so few people, they almost flee from that sense of, I'm by myself, I'm going to have time to think, I'm going to have time to be alone because I think you have to do something. You should be busy, you should be accomplishing something, you should be moving. This really came home to me the first time I ever took a yoga class. This was several years ago, and I took a yoga class, and at the end, they had Shavasana, where you just lay there on the mat and you don't do anything. And I was laying there on the mat, looking around at my friends, thinking to myself, this could possibly be the most ridiculous five minutes I've ever spent in my entire life. This is a complete waste. Now, you just jump forwards to a few weeks later, and I think the number one thing that I looked forward to in yoga was Shavasana at the end, where I could sit there and lay quietly <laughs> alone. And so... You know, these are the kind of things that you start to appreciate the value, the benefit of things that, that when we're busy and we have a million things to do in our lives, uh, we don't take the time to do that. And I think finding some time that can be quiet for yourself is very important for all the reasons both of you have just said. Before we shift to our final part? Yeah, I just wanted to add, uh, because you reminded me when you mentioned this, Carrie and Julie, is uh, there was a study by in Forbes uh, in 2021 by Nel de It's very interesting, but it, it's very commonsensical. Learn to say no. Learning to say no is a very key, important aspect of not burning out. Because if you're good, people keep asking you to do things. And our egos, which I talked about, our wanting to accomplish, our OCD, our competitive nature, our type A personalities, which are precursors to burning out, I believe that strongly, force us to take on everything. And so learning to say no is extremely important. And the other uh, thing I forgot to mention is surround yourself with positive people. Eliminate the toxic situations and the toxic people from your life because burnout has been shown to be contagious. Stress is contagious. Dogs who have stress owners uh, tend to be more stressed and aggressive, and these have been studies uh, uh, studied, and uh, it's the same with us people. So uh, I've done that to stay away from toxic colleagues, if I can, uh, to eliminate toxic people from my life, even if they're family, and to avoid toxic situations. And it's very important to say no, to learn how to say no, I'm not gonna take this, and I'm not gonna do 20,000 tasks uh, at the same time. I'm still doing it, but I'm getting better at it. Yeah, I, I struggle with that one too. 
Well, I have to take advantage of both of your expertise when it comes to institutional strategies, which we've been alluding to, and I'm grateful. I um, last year completed a Stanford Physician Wellbeing Director's course. As you know, um, Dr. Shanafel was from Mayo before he went to Stanford, um, and I've quoted the Mayo paper on the nine strategies for, for quite a while. So if you both can share, tell me what you think is helpful. We can certainly read out the nine, but I had some questions for you both specifically about the, the system and institutional strategies. What do you think, Carrie? Should I, should I read the nine out or would you, one of you like to? So for our audience who may not be familiar with the Mayo paper. I think that, I mean, that paper came out several years ago. I think it was a, it was a good paper by Tate and uh, our former CEO, John Noseworthy. And it's got, and I think some of the ideas are very good there. It's a lot to talk about. I think it might be better if you focus on a few things yeah. that you might want to bring up for the audience. I think that we could focus the discussion a little bit more. Okay. So Alon already mentioned, look, acknowledge and assess the problem. I think we've done that. We've covered, harness the power of leadership, right? Develop and implement work unit interventions, you know, um, cultivate community at work, community reward. At work. Yeah, community at work. Absolutely. Reward and incentives wisely. I think align values and strength and culture, you know, that speaks to me all the time. Let's go here. Flexibility and work-life integration. You know, these last couple of years, I've really uh, been focusing my talks on the term work-life integration and got rid of balance. <laughs> Just got rid of the word balance. Yes. I almost get angry when I hear that. Um, the work-life integration term came out of Berkeley um, Business School, the Haas Business School. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? I mean, Carrie, at least I have not experienced flexibility. I just haven't. And then I speak especially to female physicians who now recently, I'm humbled to serve as president of ASPO at our summer meeting. You know, I brought a psychologist. We talked about second traumatic stress. And the one part we talked about, for example, that impacts women is now published, right, in JAMA for female surgeons, increased risk of infertility, miscarriage. And there was a moment in time in the room when several women raised their hand, publicly talked about their personal and professional trauma from enduring this. And so I, the, I digress. I come back to this flexibility. I have to tell you, I, it, it, for especially women, who, whether you're early on having toddlers at home or like myself, my, our only child, Claire, is 16. She'll be soon to college. I'm not finding that flexibility being a priority or something that we experience. And I can tell you right now, um, as we talked about earlier in the podcast, that is a huge factor for why many female colleagues I know are just quitting. So can we talk about that strategy? Yeah, I think, I think that medicine by its very nature demands a degree of flexibility because you cannot put medicine into a cookie cutter where every evaluation is going to take the same time. Every surgical procedure is going to take the same time. Things happen. Life happens. Complexity intervenes. You have to spend different times with different patients. And I've always said that I think I've helped as many patients with a hug as I have with medicines or a scalpel. And so if you're not if you're not a caring physician who's willing to do those things, and if you don't have the flexibility to, to be able to do that, you're not going to practice good medicine. So right away, if you're blocked into, into slots that cannot change or that you have no flexibility, there's nothing built into the day, you're probably doomed for increased stress. You can probably do it, but your days are going to get longer. 
that work-life integration is going to get worse. I will tell you right now that I've never seen a more difficult task than when I look at my female colleagues, especially who are surgeons or non-surgeons, but have to do the issues of being a mom, a spouse, run a household, and run their medical practice, and have the same medical practice that I do, along with anything else that they want to do. I mean, I just look at them and I go, it's a little bit like superwomen. And, and you can't be a superwoman forever. So something, I don't have a solution for it because I haven't lived that as a female physician with all the roles that are, are ingrained in that. But I do know that there has to be an acceptance that you don't have to be full-time to be able to do what you're doing because otherwise you can't do it. I realized early on, I couldn't do everything. I couldn't be, I couldn't work in the national community of uh, otolaryngologists, along with the things that I did at Mayo and with my practice, everybody has to take some things out. There's there's very few people that can do everything and everything well. As Alon said, by, by not knowing how to say no, eventually people just get more and more on their plate until finally you say, give it to a busy person, they'll get it done. And finally you can say, give it to a busy person, it'll be done poorly. And that's eventually what's going to happen. And so... Is there, should there be flexibility? Yes. You've got to, if you don't, if physicians don't have some autonomy to be able to say, I have to block off these hours because I'm going to something with my children, or I've got some event that I have to do, or I'm going to get my own physical examination, and that's not allowed. I think that's an untenable situation. You have to have some degree of autonomy, and you have to have some degree of trust that it's not going to be abused by physicians. And so this gets into that whole issue again of, effective leadership, effective communication, effective discussion. But is it important? It's, it's incredibly important. That's great. I'm going to push you a little bit and ask you, for the listeners who are female colleagues, right, who I know they can hear it in my voice and what I'm talking about, right? Because data shows we, we do eight and a half hours more per week on domestic stuff. And you're like, ah, that's why weekends feel so not restorative, <laughs> Tell me, tell us, give us hope that on the leadership level, a lot of the leadership roles are still held by men. That flexibility even crosses their mind as a really important priority. There, it's, women surgeons and women otolaryngologists are not looking to achieve less, not at all, right? I think I have to tell you, it's just the sense that there's just no way you're penalized when it comes to promotion because the same criteria are the same criteria. I think all I really am hoping is to say, does anybody notice you are going to lose a significant talented workforce or percentage of the workforce who have so much to contribute and uh, lots of data from the AAMC and other national organizations have shown that it just looks different, right? Because women's long career longevity can be just as long. It's just that there are these things that are biological you know, no one talks about, forget call if you're menopausal and you're not sleeping seven nights in a row or two months in a row, that impacts your well-being. I shouldn't put you in the spot like that, but you can lie and just give us hope <laughs> that somebody understands and recognizes the critical part of, of flexibility. And what are we talking about, right? So that people don't have to leave their beloved career to practice surgery and medicine. Yeah, Julia, you know, I there's not an easy solution here because I think it goes back to what Alan said early on again and again, 
it goes back to the leader. And I think that the role of an effective leader in terms of how leaders are trained, how leaders are researched, how leaders are selected is critically important. But there's another element that we haven't talked about leaders, and that's how are leaders evaluated and how are leaders changed when they're not effectively making a difference. If they're not effectively listening, not effectively accommodating all the issues that we're talking about, change has to be made. Every time I've seen a problem with leadership, change that had to be made, it was always done too late. It was always done a year or two years too long. And it led to a lot of disgruntlement, a lot of unhappy people. And so you, you can't put everything on the leader, but, but at the same point in time, it's a big role. It's a huge responsibility. And, and to, to try to say, is there a way that you can garner the, that recognition of all issues? You're only going to garner that recognition if you really get to know your team, get to understand your team, get to understand what's happening in their lives. And I think that that can most effectively be done when you have a team that is of a size that accommodates it too. It's something people don't talk a lot about, but a work unit of 500 is going to be very difficult to try to get anything reasonable done as compared to a work unit of 10 or 20 people. It's a, it's a night and day different type of situation. And I think that we have to do everything we can to try to establish effective work units of a size where people have the capability to get to know one another and support one another. Because I can tell you that if you want to talk about the things that bring the most joy in medicine, I think it's when you're doing things for colleagues. And I think it's when you're doing things for colleagues and with colleagues. And with colleagues, I can tell you, I was fortunate as a head and neck surgeon, Alan will say this, the most fun I ever had in surgery was when Alan and I would operate together. And we would do cases together. And I could learn from him and he could learn from me and we could help each other and assist each other. and and see the patients afterwards. I was able to work with ophthalmologists and oral surgeons and plastic surgeons and neurosurgeons and thoracic surgeons. And, and the joys that I had was operating with colleagues, working with colleagues, meeting with medical colleagues about patient problems. And so I think the thing we have to continue to do is to try to build a community of colleagues again and not have physicians practicing in isolation. I think that goes a long ways, that and then having leaders who can understand their team and making sure their teams are not too great in size. That's the best advice I can give in that. Yeah, that's awesome. I give anything to be back in the OR with you again and with Alon. As you know, I, I want to just take a moment and thank you. I can see it now. I can see Nancy and Nancy in the OR. I remember very clearly a stay doing a superficial prodectomy. The skills I learned, the confidence I gained. Um, and thank you for being that faculty. You never had a harsh word for me. You were encouraging. You just had this very positive demeanor. You know, you, <laughs> you didn't make me feel like I, you know, I, I didn't deserve to be there. So, Carrie, it's like, what, 25 years later, 20? I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that was very <laughs> great well said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you just didn't want me to beat you on the tennis court. No, I, I had to be nice. <laughs> Bought me a few points. <laughs> I picked you as a partner. So. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had some fun doubles. So, Alan, let me ask you this part then as a follow-up to these strategies. Look, the listeners, most of them will not work at the Mayo Clinic, right? So, in most organizations, maybe I'm skeptical. I don't know that they're going to commit to all nine strategies. Based on your experience, you know, which couple strategies? I mean, Carrie's alluded to it. What do you think are the ones organizations should focus on if their leaders were listening to this podcast? So 
there's a Medscape study from 2021 that shows 50% of organizations in the U.S. do not address this. When address what? I'm sorry. Address burnout uh-huh. and wellness. So that's huge. So we're still in the infancy of this, I think, uh, across the U.S. and across the world. So number two, you were mentioning about the support and the leadership and flexibility. And, uh, you know, there's the, 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 there's the gender issue and there's the flexibility issue. And it's extremely important to find flexibility. Flexibility does not mean, as I mentioned before, a loss of dollars on the country. And I think institutions and individuals have to think outside the box because there's so many creative ways to harness the power of all these talented individuals, whether they're females, males, uh, or whatever they need to, uh, to find meaning in their work. So that's very important. Uh, going back to your question about the institutional strategy, yes, Mayo has put together nine institutional strategies. Yes, Mayo may be easier to work there and to implement these things because it's a hundred and some year old institution, 120 year old institution that's very well oiled and greased. But at the same time, I do not believe that all these steps and strategies work for every institution. So every institution is different. There are different challenges at the American University of Beirut than there are at the Mayo Clinic, than there are at the uh, whatever, the, the Institut Gustave Russie in France or somewhere in, uh, in uh, Nigeria. So, uh, so I think open communication, thinking outside the box, creativity, good leadership is extremely important in setting up institutional strategies in addition to the individual strategy we talked about to be able to address these issues. Awesome. Well, the final um, question I would uh, love to get your thoughts on. Um, I've been speaking on, reflecting on the topic of psychological safety, right? We know a pandemic has really brought to forth. I mean, just for us who are physicians and, and our families, I remember just you know, pre-vaccination, right? The PPE, taking off my scrubs in the garage, running across the house directly into the shower. I've even had colleagues that live apart from their families because their spouse has autoimmune disease. You know, so so there's a lot there to unpack, and I am not an expert on on psychological safety. I will share that I'm very excited, Carrie. Um, during this transition, I'm also planning to launch a physician coaching business. However, the difference for me, I came to realize during disability and just when I look back on my entire career, we doctors invest our whole whole selves into being a better doctor and a better surgeon. And I have to tell you, we're not formally taught about what we need to have personal, professional safety, protection. So what I, just navigating disability was a nightmare. You know, I have colleagues who find out they have stage three breast cancer. And if I could, if I could tell you what they endured to just to ensure, right? And you're the breadwinner. I mean, there's just so much there to unpack. So I think my question for you, you know, you know, um, what what finally just came to me clear as day is we surgeons understand um Dr. O'Toole Gawandi's checklist manifesto, right? When we're in the OR, we have timeout, we have checklists. It's, we've really come a long way with standardization and patient safety. So it dawned on me that I believe 
my journey then is preparing me to create a checklist for physicians, right? Because for all the people listening who are coming out of residency and fellowship, if you don't have an excellent financial advisor, if it wasn't for an incredible own occupation disability insurance plan um, that I was lucky to have started, um, probably, yeah, around the, my third or fourth year at Mayo, I would not be, it, it, things would be even more challenging for me right now as I'm not, as I, you know, gave up a surgeon's salary. So just what are your thoughts about this concept of safety for physicians as a professional? Well, you know, I think it's it's an important concept. There's no question about that. Uh, and it's going to be a concept that's going to change throughout physicians' lives. And it's going to change depending upon life circumstances. And so what is a, important to somebody at one year or one time or even one month can, can vary dramatically depending upon all the different things that life can throw at us. So it really gets into some of the discussion that people have a lot of times about words that are used interchangeably like wellness or well-being or healthy living or health. I mean, people use these terms all the time interchangeably. But in actuality, if we think of the totality of what well-being means and all the different areas that it involves, we spend a lot of time at, at our Healthy Living Center trying to focus on what was really important about that term well-being, because that's really gets into this issue of safety for an individual, all the nuances that are important. And we came in with the fact that a lot of it has to do with an individual desired situation, desired balance, desired how they weigh these different factors at different times. Because if you look at the things that you just mentioned, somebody's physical health, or their mental, or their emotional, or their social, or their vocational, or their personal, I mean, you can go on and on and list these things. They're going to be different at different times in people's lives. So to understand the totality of what is important to you at those times and focusing on them is very, very important. And that really led me to start a program that, that I said, as I mentioned to you, I think we have to focus on different things. People have known for a long time that one of the most important things of all is to, if you wanted to say, what can make the healthiest individual? It has nothing to do with diet. It has nothing to do with exercise. It really has to do with how are you sleeping? As Alon said, how are you doing with those personal interactions? And what is your level of education? Isn't that an interesting three things? Those three things are the highest correlates with longevity and overall well-being. And so in actuality, people don't spend enough time, as the just said, with colleagues, with friends, being able to do things with other people. And it's critically important. A lot of you may remember the Robin Williams movie, Patch Adams. Patch Adams was this physician in West Virginia that was starting a clinic. And he was a character. And he came to our institution one time and there was a cocktail hour and I had the opportunity to, to talk to him. We kind of hit it off and we spent a, a lot of that evening just sitting there at a railing, having a drink, talking about his life and what he had found out. And I'll never forget that I asked him, I said, Patch, what have you found out is the biggest thing that's causing people distress or illness in the world? And he said to me, it was two things. He said, people are lonely and they don't like their jobs lonely and they don't like their jobs. And I've told that to so many people. I've even had people get up after a lecture I've given and said, gee, you said that. I just realized that's me. I'm quitting my job tomorrow. And I said, well, I didn't want you to quit your job. <laughs> I want you to think about this a little bit. But in actuality, if you think that it's loneliness and not liking your jobs, it's what we've talked about today. 
You've got to find ways to make that job meaningful and purposeful or change as a lot. Don't, don't have that. You can't be scared to make a change. Making a change is probably might be the very right thing to do, but also address this issue of loneliness, social isolation. One of the biggest problems we have right now in this country, and it's there in medicine. If you really want to talk about one of the things we didn't get into, if you really want to talk about ways to address burnout, one of the big things is establishing a good community of people at work. If you find people in your work unit do things together outside of work or do things fun at work, you have less incidence of burnout. And the last thing I'll mention is that one of the things we haven't talked about today that I hear from people all over the country is that good leaders have to find ways to take the hassles out of the workday. And the biggest hassle I hear from everybody is the darn electronic medical record and increasing clerical duties. It's again and again and again, I hear it all the time, the increased time they're spending, lunches on the computer, lunches dictating, evenings dictating notes, going into their in-baskets, doing everything all night long. It's just, it's driving people crazy. Physicians have to work with their, their administrative teams and find ways to get help so they reduce their clerical duties and it doesn't just keep getting dumped on physicians. That's the last thing I'll say, but I would good, couldn't agree with a lot more. Focusing on social interactions goes a long ways. Do things with your colleagues. I read Vivek Murthy's book, Together, and that was profoundly, it spoke to the epidemic of American health and loneliness being you know, a critical factor for, for whether it's opioid crisis, right, obesity, yeah. So thank you, Carrie. You know what? It's clear to us we're going to need a part two of this podcast. Okay, Alan, final word. Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, before my final word, uh, things we have not mentioned, but are very obvious. Uh, and Carrie has talked about it into these 12 habits. You know, of course, not smoking, exercising, uh, developing a hobby, finding something meaningful is very important. I'm learning guitar in my 50s. I'm horrible. And it's taking a long time, but going back to playing these 70s and 80s uh, music is so therapeutic and learning them, Leonard Cohen, all that stuff, Pink Floyd and all that stuff. The other thing is that uh, it goes back to how we're programmed and I forgot to mention, we are extremely hard on ourselves, on our colleagues and uh, just practicing um, empathy towards ourselves and towards our colleagues are very important. I just want to address also the gender issue you mentioned. I think choosing your life partner is extremely important because support has to start coming from the family. And uh, I think most, a lot of societies are patriarchal, not just uh, the, the Eastern societies. And uh, I think the more there's awareness, thanks to the efforts that you're making and other female leaders, and the more there are female leaders in the field, especially in surgeries, this is when things will begin to change. Otherwise, I don't see them changing that fast, to be very frank. So to wrap it up, uh, I think the, uh, you know, the, 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 this podcast, I want to thank you and Dr. Shah uh, and everybody that put this together. It's extremely important to talk about this. This is part of the therapy to raise awareness it's amazing to have leaders like you and Carrie. You have done so much at the global, on the global scale. And uh, again, uh, individual strategies don't have to be rigid and set. They have to be flexible. So 
would uh, and and custom made to each individual and each individual society and different healthcare system because there are so many different ones across the world and uh, leadership flexibility empathy compassion and the courage to say no and to say it's time to change and to leave the table and to walk away are extremely important well i i can't thank you guys enough so special to reconnect again and you've inspired me and I learned so much. Um, so thank you. I know a couple of things, Carrie, can you, for our listeners, if they're interested, can you repeat the name of your company or the website so that if our listeners want to go check it out, they can? Sure. It's uh, 12, the number 12, and then forhealth.com. Forhealth.com. Excellent. And I know um, I think by the time this podcast airs, it would have been after the AAO, but perhaps we can send out through social media. You guys are teaching a course, correct, in Philadelphia? Can you tell me the, the, at least the date or time or the title, or should they just look you up? Sure. It's Wednesday, the Wednesday, I'm trying to remember, the 14th, 14th. of September. Carrie, I think it's at 9.15 a.m., uh, 8.15, I believe. Uh, at the American Academy of Otolaryngology meeting in Philadelphia. It's called uh, Wellness uh, and Leadership, Burnout Wellness and Leadership in Medicine. Uh, and it's essentially discussing everything we've discussed today. Awesome. Thank you both again for your time. Um, my best to your families. And I look forward to having another conversation because, you know, who says we're limited to just one? So on behalf of our listeners, thank you. I'll have to add one more thing regarding, you know, it's very interesting what Kerry mentioned and the memories you have 20 years later. What they are is our tennis doubles together and operating together and our social trips and medical trips across the world. I mean, I think this is very important that we remember that. And these are some of the highlights of our careers is camaraderie and uh, Carol had a hell of a net game that I'll never forget. And she was so sturdy at the net. And we still talk about this. So that's, I think that's very important. Thank you so much for those good memories. Well, let's bring our rackets to Philadelphia. Somebody find a court. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks again. So thank you to our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast on the topic of well-being for physicians. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.